Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, why Democrats can't seem to pass President Biden's big spending bill. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And on the show today, to start, we're going to talk politics. President Joe Biden and fellow Democrats control the White House, the U.S. Senate, and the U.S. House. And since they won all that, they have promised a lot. Historic investment in the nation's roads and highways, bridges and transit, and our drinking water systems and broadband, clean energy, environmental cleanup, and making infrastructure more resilient, and the climate crisis much more in our minds and how do we deal with it. Child care you know, and infrastructure and fighting climate change, all the things. Right now, in fact, Democrats are trying to get a really big spending bill through Congress, one that could cost up to $3.5 trillion. But from the start, this thing has been a hard sell. And not primarily because of Republican opposition, but instead because of two Democrats who haven't been fully on board. Sit down, we want to talk to you real quick. Want to talk to you real quick? Hi, actually, I am heading out. Kirsten Cinema. We need a Build Back Better plan right now. And Joe Manchin. What's the urgency? What's the urgency that we have? It's not the same urgency that we have with the American Rescue Plan. These two Democrats could be considered moderates or mavericks, or in Manchin's case, kind of conservative. And for a while now, they have both been thorns in Biden's side. I've been trying to figure out why Democrats, even in the majority, why they can't seem to get their ducks in a row and get the mansions and cinemas of their party in line. And there is no better voice, in my opinion, to ask that kind of question to than NPR's own Mara Liason. She is a senior political correspondent on NPR's Washington desk, and she's been covering this stuff for a while. Mara told me a few things. One, Democrats have been like this, chaotic, all over the place, for quite some time. And two, just because Democrats have a majority, that does not mean it's actually big enough to do all they want to do. Here they are trying to do this very ambitious LBJ, FDR-style package of legislation with margins that are not LBJ or FDR-sized margins. As a matter of fact, there are hardly any margins at all. They're trying to put this gigantic elephant through the python of governing, and it's really, really hard. Uh, The Democrats also are a big heterogeneous coalition. They have Bernie Sanders and they have Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. So those are the logical, rational reasons why it's hard for them to do this. The things that are not, that are mystifying and maybe less excusable, is why couldn't Democrats have come up with a way to sell this package, to call it the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, or more precisely, to allow the press to call it the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, is political malpractice. People look at that, and all they think about is the top-line number and how much Democrats are going to spend. Yeah. Yeah. So big picture, like top four or five points. What's in this spending bill? What's in this spending bill is programs that will help people pay for childcare and public preschool. In other words, right now, public school starts at kindergarten. Uh, The bill wants to make it start a couple years earlier. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lots of things to help Joe Biden meet his climate goals, which is to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030. Uh, There are proposals in the bill, not all of them might make it to the finish line, but to expand Medicare so it covers dental and vision, to allow Medicare to negotiate uh, with big drug companies to get the price of drugs down, the price of prescription drugs down. 
There are proposal, other proposals on clean energy. Uh, there are proposals about community college, which might not survive. Uh, there's a child tax credit, which we already have, but the president would like to make it permanent or at least extend it for a longer period of time. So it's, a, it's an expansion of the safety net, although it's not a good idea for Democrats to call it that because most people don't want an expanded safety net. They mm. think it sounds like welfare. They just want mm. jobs and help paying for grandma's nursing home and their kids' educations. Which is... Hate the to safety break it net, to but we Social don't talk net. about it. Yeah, yeah. But that's but getting back to the thing about why are Democrats in this situation? They couldn't figure out a way to really sell this. Yeah. So okay, my I have several questions, and I want to get to Manton and Cinema in a bit. But first, if Democrats knew that the margins were so thin, and they knew how large swaths of the American public look at programs like this. Why did they write a bill so big in the first place? Well, one of the reasons is that they felt this was their only shot. Uh, Most parties that have all branches of government lose Congress, one house or both, in a midterm election. They also knew that they weren't going to get any Republican votes, so they had to use a budget maneuver called reconciliation. So they decided to put everything on one bill. They also knew that individual pieces of this packaged poll very well. In other words, public preschool is popular. Having Medicare negotiate for lower prescription drug prices is popular. So they figured, look, you know, these are things that test well. We're on the side of the majority of American people in wanting these things. Um, And, you know, they were just going to go for it. The problem is that they underestimated how hard it would be to get all Democrats on board. And because they have such small margins, as we just discussed, they have to get all Democrats on board in the Senate. And you've heard Joe Biden say this over and over again. I've got 48 Democratic senators with me. We're just talking about two of them, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Let's talk about those two. I find them quite fascinating. And I also find them to be in love with the attention they're getting right now. It's like they just soak it up. But you well, know, well, they're a member of the United States Senate. Yeah. <laughs> so Kirsten Cinema, Democratic senator from Arizona, and Joe Manchin, Democratic senator from West Virginia, they have been the two Senate Democrats keeping this big bill from passing. What do they want, and why are they saying uh, why they're doing this? Well, first of all, they don't want the same things. There's Manchin and there's cinema. It's not they're not yes. a block. Now, yeah. Joe Manchin is much easier to understand. He is not a liberal or a progressive, as he constantly reminds us. He comes from West Virginia, which went for Donald Trump by something like thirty nine points. Uh, he and comes it's from a, big a very coal state. red state. Big coal state. He's been very open about his priorities. He wants to protect coal and gas. He wants to make sure that everything's paid for. He's worried about the solvency of Medicare and Social Security. He does want to raise taxes on the wealthy and corporations. He wants to undo oh. some of the Trump tax cuts. But he's he, we know where Joe Manchin is coming from. He is the only Democrat in the Senate that represents a red state. Cinema uh. is a much more mysterious character. She Please says she, her to me. she well, she used to be a, gr- a member of the Green Party. She was an environmental activist. She moved to the center, won a Senate seat in Arizona. She understood where Arizona voters were. She is said to want to style herself after John McCain, the famous maverick from 
uh, Arizona. She voted against a minimum wage increase, something that's very popular across the country, but also certainly with the Democratic base. She Mm -hmm. is reported to be against any tax increases, even for the wealthy or corporations. Mm. Uh, She does not want to allow the government to negotiate with Big Pharma to lower prescription drug prices. So it's unclear. She's been accused of doing the will of lobbyists. One of the reasons it's hard to understand where she's coming from is she doesn't talk to the press or explain what she wants or what her principles are. Uh, And because the Democrats don't have any margin for error in the Senate, it means that any single Democrat gets to be the center of the universe and hold up the entire package. Yeah, I mean... uh High school civics class, Sam Sanders, is kind of saying to himself right now, it's not supposed to be that way. <laughs> well, like, that's that's a different question. It's not supposed to – well, first of all, as long as you have the filibuster, yes, it's supposed to be that way. As long as the rules of the Senate say that you have to have 60 votes to pass anything, this is how it's going to be. Now, there are a lot of people questioning this because the Democrats, 50 of them in the Senate right now, represent 41 million more people than the 51 Republicans That's in the Senate. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. as long as we have enshrined these minoritarian institutions, and don't forget, our country was founded with a system that protected minority rights, as in the minority party's rights. They didn't want the majority to just run roughshod over everything. The founders wanted to build in some protection for the minority, hoping they could force some compromise. But there are many people who think that's gotten out of whack. The the minority has so much more power than the majority right now that it's making people question the fairness of the entire system. Yeah, yeah. To Joe Biden... What does it mean for him and his presidency if any part of this bill falls out or scales back in order to pass? How big of a failure would that be for Biden and Democrats, if a failure at all? Scaling back, okay. Failing, not okay. In other words, the bill is going to be scaled back. Whoever thought that they could pass a $3.5 trillion package with no majorities to speak of in Congress was smoking something. So yes, it will be scaled back. I don't consider that a failure unless Democrats are so inept at selling this and framing it that they act like they're really disappointed with what they get in the end. If they get a one-point-something trillion-dollar bill and a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill on top of the big $1 trillion COVID relief bill they passed earlier, that will be a monumental achievement. So it's up to them to to explain it that way. But I think if it's scaled back, it's fine for Joe Biden. If one of these pieces fails to pass, it will be a big blow to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I look at what's going on in the House and Senate in the White House or what's not going on, I think my big takeaway from all of this is that, oh, yeah, Congress still doesn't really get big stuff done a lot. And they haven't really gotten big stuff done a lot and frequently for at this point as long as I can remember. But I'm wondering for you, Mara, what is the biggest takeaway about the state of American politics right now from the back and forth over this big spending bill? Well, you know, what you just pointed out is something that Joe Biden actually talks about a lot. And he put talks about it in a global context. You know, he says democracies have to prove they can deliver. Democracies look inefficient, incompetent. They can't get their act together. And there you have these authoritarian systems that can just, you know, the dictator just waves a magic wand and something happens. And he says, we have to prove that democracies can deliver. And I think it's a really big test. 
It has been a really long time since Congress was able to work together to solve big problems, whether it's climate, income inequality, health care, education, retirement, you name it. Uh, so I think this is a big, crucial moment, not just for the Democratic Party or for Joe Biden, but for democracy itself. When the world's greatest superpower looks like it's tied up in knots and can't get anything done, that's not good for democracy everywhere. Mm. Mara, always a pleasure. Listeners, if you want to hear more of Mara and her and my colleagues on NPR's Washington desk, listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's there all the time just for you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Mara. All right, coming up, we talk about the HBO drama Succession. It is a show that I have become obsessed with, and I want to discuss what it says about class in America. We'll also play Who Said That. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. When it comes to match three style puzzle games, only one reigns supreme. Best Fiends. It's an action-packed adventure game and puzzle game rolled into one. So it's no wonder it's got so many five-star reviews. Plus, there's new content added all the time. If you're tired of crushing the same old candy, give Best Fiends a try. You can download Best Fiends free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This message comes from NPR sponsor Russell's Reserve. When master distiller Eddie Russell created Russell's Reserve, he sought to make a bourbon delicious for everyone. You can count on their age to perfection, 10-year-old bourbon to sip neat, on the rocks or in a classic Boulevardier cocktail. Order Russell's Reserve for delivery from Drizzly today and share with your chosen family. Russell's Reserve, 45% alcohol by volume, 90 proof, 2020 Campari America, New York, New York. Please drink responsibly. It's succession time. If you know that theme song that we're playing right now, then you know what I'm talking about. That is a theme for HBO's Succession, my current TV obsession. So Succession's third season premiered last Sunday, and it has become a show that I want to talk about all the time. For those who haven't seen it, Succession is all about this very rich and obnoxious family in charge of a massive conservative media corporation. Think Fox News and the Murdochs. The show centers on Logan Roy. So Logan Roy is the 80-year-old patriarch of the family, and he has a problem. He needs to pick a successor for the family business. And he has a bunch of kids, and they all have these incredible, terrible personalities. So it's all about uh, his kids and also some tertiary characters vying for control of this juggernaut. That is Doreen St. Felix. She's a staff writer and TV critic for The New Yorker. I talked with Doreen this week about why I love this show so much, even when everyone in this show, everyone, is just terrible. Like, the worst. Here, listen. What I think he meant to say was that he wished that mom gave birth to a can opener because at least then it would be useful. Greg, this is not Charles Dickens' world, okay? You don't go around talking about principles. Not to be crude about it, but uh, politics is what comes out the Would you rather be up front feeding the horse? I think Succession is part of this trend of shows in which none of the characters are actually redeemable. White Lotus, Nine Perfect Strangers, The Undoing, all shows which I binged. So what makes these kind of shows about rich and amoral and mostly white people, what makes them so compelling? Doreen had an answer for me, 
and a whole lot of other big thoughts. It's funny because we're in this era of pop cultural discourse where the goal of what we want television to do is to make us feel seen. We want to feel like we're relating to the stories that are on our screen, right? That's what we talk about when we're trying to be our best consumerist selves. But there is a, I think, more realistic, truer, nastier part of ourselves that wants to watch bad people doing bad things. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and it can feel oddly, when I watch Succession, I feel this odd catharsis where I don't have to be a moral viewer. If anything, like I'm casting morality aside because that's not really the matrix through which you can enjoy the show. If you are looking at the show as something that's going to be edifying, then you're going to have a terrible time, right? You have to release yeah. yourself from some of these like weird dictums that have become really lodged in our idea of what television and film is supposed to do for us. This is not a show that's trying to do anything for you beyond um, entertaining you. Yeah. Well, and I kind of put succession in this category of just like wealthy white people behaving badly. I think it's a whole subgenre now. I mean, I'm talking about White Lotus. I'm talking about even like hacks. And I find myself when I watch these shows, they give me a way to feel better about myself. Because I can say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that nasty. I'm actually a good person compared to the Roy family. And that seems entirely antithetical to this idea that we talk about and that you mentioned of like representation in television and seeing ourselves on screen. Absolutely. And I think also what attracts me to this subgenre, as you so eloquently call it, is that the massive amount of world building that has to go on. Um, I think I've talked to some people who watch Succession and who didn't even realize that it's really supposed to be like a Murdoch blind item or that's like where the inspiration begins from. And that's because the world is so finely designed and so finely tuned. The dialogue is just like, it's English, but it almost feels like its own language. The way the writers are able to like put these words together. Oink for your sausages, Piggy. Oink, oink. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oink for your sausages, Tom. Oink, oink. Oink. No, no. No half-hearted oink. I want full-hearted oink. Oink, 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 oink. And that, I think, is what makes this show stand out, even amongst the other shows that we're kind of obliquely and directly referencing here, is that there's no Trump illusions that are made. It would be so easy to make this kind of like a flatter funhouse mirror of what is happening in our country today. But if you really look at the texture, the way the dialogue is written, the camera work, it's of a completely different world. It's like happening on its own planet. And so that is what I think is one of the amazing things that the show is able to achieve. Well, and it's something that you might not expect in a drama like this. When you describe world building, we usually think about sci-fi or Marvel or like Dune. And this show, just about a rich media empire family, has its own very curated world. It looks and feels like something I would never experience at my income level. (laughs) Absolutely. And also something that I think about is When you first start watching the show, right, you're like, these people are crazy wealthy. And then Mm -hmm. as the episodes continue, I would say that wealth is almost kind of besides the point of it. Mm. Of course, this is a show about a class of people who are so elevated above society that they are not actually a part of society. And 
these people, their petty human dramas are exacting an actual immeasurable effect on the society that's happening beneath them. But we never actually see that. There are a few really poignant scenes, I'm thinking, in season one where they're at that vacation house and they make that sweet young boy, they make him (laughs) play a round of baseball, some sport, And if he makes a home run, they'll give him a million dollars, right? Don't worry about it. Can you hit a ball? Yeah. Great, because I will give you one million dollars if you hit a home run. I'm dead serious, okay? It's their like completely grotesque way of interacting yes. with people who are not real people to them. And he doesn't make yeah. the home run. And they're all just like, ha, huh, that was fun. Meanwhile, this kid's life has probably mm-hmm. changed course for forever. But what the writers have decided to do, and I think it's the right choice, is to abandon him because he doesn't exist in this... In their world, they don't have to deal with him. Exactly. When it comes to this idea of like liking and enjoying watching other people on screen be really nasty and horrible, how much of it is just being drawn to watching nasty people to feel like we're not that bad? And how much of it is wanting to watch rich people and white rich people in particular be terrible? I cannot tell when I watch Succession. Like, would I enjoy a show with characters as nasty as Succession but they were middle class and of color. I don't know. That's an interesting question. It makes me think of Empire. Empire is another King Lear story, but it was set in a black world, in the music industry world. And the characters were not, I feel like they were never fully allowed to be completely terrible, even Lucius. All of the characters were given, you know, that one flaw that justified some of their nastier behaviors. And that's something that obviously was a choice on the writer's part, but it also, I think, is a pretty telling indication of what we allow our Black characters to do, how far we allow them to go in terms of being like bad. Because Mm. stereotype and caricature is always just around the corner, right? I think the whiteness of the world, which Uh is always implied, right? It never has to comment on it. Yeah. It allows us freedom. And Mm. as much as white people, I I think when we use the phrase white people, we're not even really talking about people really, right? We're just talking about this idea of whiteness as unabashed freedom. Um, Whiteness is actually, in my mind, an infinite mystery, right? White people don't even Mm. really understand what whiteness is themselves. Mm. And so... I know there are a lot of arguments that there are too many of these shows, right? We just had White Lotus. And then there was that Mm -hmm. Nine Perfect Strangers show on Hulu. And then Succession is back. But I think really what the issue is, is that we don't have more shows about Black people and Blackness. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that this, I don't think that Succession is tapping a well that's already dry. Mm. There's been some commentary around succession and kind of the overall landscape of TV right now. There's a few essays have made this point. They basically are saying, say for like big network shows, everything else you're going to see either really rich people or really poor people. And there is this disappearing middle class in television right now. I'm not sure if I agree and I haven't done the research to verify it, but is that something that you've been seeing? And are the kinds of class representation on television right now becoming in any way, I don't know, polarized? So that's an interesting question. The idea of landscape is something that I find myself using less and less when I think of television because the options are just like actually innumerable. 
But there are plenty of shows that represent what we understand to be the sitcom middle class space, but they don't receive the same critical attention as a show mm. like White Lotus mm. or Succession. Yeah. The, you know, the living room couch is still in a lot of scenes, uh-huh. but I would say that besides reality television, which is really what is taking over <laughs> yeah. the medium, there are plenty of these shows. It's just that are people going to feel as peaked or as aroused by them as they do when they yeah. watch a show like Succession? Yeah. Well, and the certain kind of people that live and breathe and write and talk in those circles. Like when I think of like shows like HBO's Girls or even now Succession, these are shows that are never really getting more than a million viewers an episode, if that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But in the world of Twitter and the TV criticism space, they seem like the biggest things in the world, you know, when in fact, NCIS is getting literally (laughs) eight times the ratings of those shows and we just don't talk about it. Is that a problem? Sam, that is, you're describing the existential crisis of my job these days. (laughs) Happy to do so. (laughs) Thank you. I'll just, you know, lose my head after we, after we hang up. But I feel a lot of pressure to address what the commentariat is thinking about. And then, you know, turning on Hulu and looking at what's playing on network television. Like you said, it's NCIS, it's Law and Order. Um, It's The Good Doctor. I couldn't save them. It's sad. They should have become adults. I think people don't see them as representing the forward movement of culture. But the more difficult question is whether these shows that we put so much um, critical value on are actually even moving culture forward, right? Or are they actually just, if anything, like outliers? And maybe The Good Doctor is what we should be thinking about when we think about what it is that people want to watch when they watch television. So yeah, it's like a really, it's a tenuous moment that we're at because these streamers have such a stronghold on people's idea of where television is quote unquote going. Um, and it causes us to um, not see the other side of it, which is what is happening on network television, what is happening in the reality TV space. You know, It's kind of like how no one wants to admit that the internet is just porn. <laughs> television is kind of just reality TV. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Will you stick around to play a game with us? Of course I'll play a game. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax, offering car shoppers more ways to shop, test drive, and buy. CarMax takes the stress out of car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat. Because at CarMax, you can buy your way. Online from the comfort of your home, in person, on the lot, or a combination of both. Plus, CarMax has you covered with a 30-day money-back guarantee up to 1,500 miles. Learn more today at CarMax.com. Stress less and shop your way at CarMax, the way it should be. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Celebrate half a century of NPR and support NPR's programming with curated wines sent direct to your door, like Nina Totenberg Red Blend and the NPR Wine Club's 50th Anniversary Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is the perfect pairing to NPR's programming. For NPR listeners 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org. We're about to play my favorite game, Who Said That? (laughs) 
I've got two distinguished guests here to play this week. I will let y'all tell our listeners who you are. My name is Doreen Saint-Felix. I am a staff writer and a television critic at The New Yorker. Jasmine Hughes. I'm a writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, a reporter for the Times Metro section, and most importantly, one of Doreen's best and most competitive friends. <laughs> oh, I love it. I She's love it. She's not lying, friends. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you both to leave the friend part by the wayside and just focus on the competitive part. Um, this is Mortal Kombat. Take no prisoners. It's all about the win. Uh, the game is quite simple. I share three quotes from the week of news. You got to tell me who said it or what story I'm talking about. There are no buzzers. There are no timers. Just yell out the answer. But I'm sorry to report that the winner will get nothing but bragging rights because it's public radio. We ain't got that kind of money. Bragging rights are invaluable to me, so okay. I'm okay. ready. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can Which, I just stop so, this for a second? I just got an error message on my app that said the recording has stopped. Uh-oh. So hold on. I'm going to stop that. No worries. <sighs> the shadow period of Mercury retrograde is real and something that we're all dealing with every day. I didn't um, know there was a shadow <laughs> period as well. What is we're the shadow period? period? What does that mean? Mercury is in retrograde. <laughs> when does it end? <laughs> it never ends. I do want us to preserve the Zoom recording of Mercury in retrograde shadow because listeners need to know. I had no idea. What exactly does this shadow of a Mercury retrograde mean for my life? Please tell me. Oh, I don't know. I haven't been gay for long enough yet, but just circle <laughs> back with me in five years and I'll like the information will be downloaded to my brain. Okay. All good. All good. Uh, well, here we go. This first quote is from, it's about two people that you would expect to be friends, but actually they're not. It's really Ooh. spicy. Here it is. Quote, the only time he gets press is when he talks bad about me. He claims 50-plus years ago I took away a camera angle that denied him 30 seconds more of primetime TV. I'm giving it back to him now by letting him spew his hatred for the world to see. What? What? Yes. This you is see- a legendary TV star in a fight with the used-to-be co-star. Oh, my oh, goodness. Is this, you see, you're, is this like Katie Couric and Matt Lauer or something? 50 years Even ago, older. Jasmine. 50 years ago. <laughs> 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Okay. You know, there are no bad ideas in brainstorming, but there are bad ideas in game shows. I understand. Okay. Um, that would be the 70s. Um, who was this very was popular? Two actors from a groundbreaking sci-fi show about space. Oh, this is George Takei and William Shatner. <gasps> yes. Did you see this story? I did well, not see George this story George is at all. always popping off. So I didn't even see the story, but I knew it had to be him. Yeah, so... <laughs> He's very sassy. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, after William Shatner became the oldest person to ever go to space on October 15th, I think with Jeff Bezos, in a Page Six article, Shatner's Star Trek co-star George Takei said... Quote, he's boldly going where other people have gone before. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my George is messy. And then he also said about Shatner, he's a guinea pig, 90 years old, and it's important to find out what happens. Oh, wow. My gosh. They should have a... Real Housewives of Space or something, because this is nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, did y'all also see there's this video of William Shatner with Bezos and others, I guess, once they go to space and come back down. 
And William Shatner is trying to have this emotional moment with Jeff Bezos and talking to him about history and meaning and big stuff. And then um, some other folks come by with a bottle of champagne and Bezos just turns away from William Shatner to go drink. And it was the saddest thing. And you see William Shatner just become crestfallen. Don't be mean to him. I mean, but that's what you get for fraternizing with uh, Jeff Bezos. I know. <laughs> like, is Jeff Sorry really going to gonna be a good friend to you? No. He's got to go get his fillers done. He's too busy. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be speedy, but not up. good. That's like the Amazon <laughs> yeah. promise. Yeah. He'll yeah. be there, but not in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> Who got that first point? I forget. That was Doreen. Okay, Doreen. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. How much would it take for y'all to go to space with Jeff Bezos? He doesn't have that kind of money. And he has all the money. (laughs) I think I would only go to space with Jeff if he agreed to stay in space and I got to come home by myself. There you go. I would take one for the team. (laughs) Yes, yes. This is a great moment to note that Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters. (laughs) I have to say that. (laughs) Oh, my God. I hope you got your show canceled. All right, next quote. Also, actors fighting. Something's in the air. Here's a quote. Frankly, I wish Nicole Kidman would take some time off. What? Damn. What actress said this? I have an idea, but I want Jasmine to guess first. Do we have any more more context? Um, This was an actress who sat for an interview for The New Yorker. And she was asked what oh, her next oh, series oh, would be. Yes. This is Edie Falco. Yes. Ding, very ding, nice. Ding. Very nice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so that quote comes from Edie Falco in The New Yorker. She was asked what her next big series would be after The Sopranos and Nurse Jackie and her recent role as Hillary Clinton in American Crime Story Impeachment. Um, and then she goes on to admit that she was jealous of Kate Winslet on Mare of Easttown and kind of jealous of Nicole Kidman, I suppose, because like women actors of a certain age, I guess it makes sense that they're still having to compete for the same roles. That makes sense. It's sad. But like, yeah, that's probably the reality. I think in defense of Nicole Kidman, Nicole Kidman is single-handedly keeping the wig industry alive, okay? She is stimulating the economy, and we should give her her props. That's it. Did y'all watch Nine Perfect Strangers? That was just, and I love Nicole Kidman. That was foolishness. That was absurd. She knew it was, too. That accent. How did you get in here? I came in through the door. I'm Masha. It's like, Nicole, think about what you're doing. Miss Nicole, I watched the finale of The Undoing. I'm obviously going to follow you to many places. <laughs> Nine perfect strangers, too far. I don't want to suffer. You're already suffering. All right, this last quote. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to yet another round of No Bones. This is the quote. I don't understand this No Bones. This is a new meme that days either have bones or they don't have bones. And I know this is a meme, but I haven't gotten to the root of the meme yet. Wait, what are the... The days have bones? <laughs> what language That's are you true. speaking? Is this a TikTok <laughs> meme, Let Sam me... Sanders? It's, it's like, today is a bones day. Today is a no bones day. Yes. I know this, but I don't know yes. anything beyond that. Can I, can I just put out a crazy name out there? Do it. Is this Drew Barrymore? <laughs> 
<laughs> because I feel like this is something she would say on her talk show. Okay, all right, cool. I'm just, <laughs> just hazarding a guess. <laughs> Drew, if you're listening, please take up the bone discourse on your show. We would like for that to happen. When uh, Drew fact, finds out about the bones discourse next week, she's going to love this. Yes. Please yes. So this quote actually comes from Jonathan Graziano. He has a 13-year-old pug named Noodle. And Noodle has become a TikTok celebrity because in these videos that Jonathan posts, he plays a game where they quote, a game where we find out if my 13-year-old pug woke up with bones. And as a result, we'll find out what kind of day we're going to have. And so then in the video, Jonathan lifts up his very tired-looking pug out of the bed. And if Noodle stands... It's a Bones Day, which means it's time to get out there and do things and treat yourself. But if Noodle flops back down... (laughs) (laughs) Noodle! Oh, sure enough. Okay, it's a No Bones Day. It's a No Bones Day, which is like time to cancel your plans and go back to bed. If Beth calls and says, you know, come to Legoland with me and my two kids, you know, feel free to just say, you know, Beth, you know, I love you. You know, I love you, but it's a No Bones Day. And little Carl always kicks me when I'm around. And, you know, I think little Jeffrey was born without a moral compass. I just don't have the bones. I kind of like that. Oh, no, this is this is really dark for me. This is like out of Go back outside. We need our booster shots. We need to be outside touching grass. This is too much. Hell no. I'm crossing I like- myself right now. <laughs> this is demonry. It feels very life flat movement, self-care movement. Like, you wake up, see how you feel, and act accordingly. And you know what? Now that I think about it, I'm going to have a few no-bones days next week. I deserve it. Okay, Sam Sanders, if you want a random dog on TikTok who you've never met, who you're never going to meet, to be able to tell you what to do with your life, I love that for you. But it's like, <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day every day. I don't want to leave. Yeah. My, it's bad enough that my life is in my hands. I don't want to leave it in the hands of a dog. <laughs> Come on. So what does a no-bones morning look like for y'all too? Oh, I know when I'm having a no-bones day. You know when you're sleeping and your phone is by your side and then you wake up? And you decide to just start living out your life on your phone and then you drop your phone on your face. <laughs> That's when I, I know I'm having a no bones day. That's a no bones day. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I haven't had a bone in my day in like two years. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> I know I'm not having a no bones day when the first voice I hear in the morning is Brian Lair's, which is because I love Brian Lair, but Brian Lair don't come on until 10 o'clock. So if I'm just sitting around... <laughs> In my house, not turning on the TV, not like talking on the phone, not doing any work. I'm just like flipping on Brian Larry at 10 o'clock. That means that's when my day is starting. Okay. That's a no bones that's day. That's a no bones day. All right. Well, um, I hope this was a bones day and a bones <laughs> game for you both. Uh, it, it felt was. very bonesy to me. Um, who do y'all think won? I think it's Doreen. Why? I think Ooh. it's a tie. It's a tie? Mm-hmm. I'll let it be a tie. All right. It could be a tie. I feel like that's that's I the bony who, thing to do. Dude, let's put yes. bones in this game and make it what a tie. <laughs> I tell you who wouldn't declare a tie in a competition? William Shatner and George Takei. <laughs> Thanks again to Doreen Saint-Felix. She's a staff writer and TV critic at The New Yorker. And also thanks to Jasmine Hughes, a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and Metro reporter for The New York Times. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. 
We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Sammy from Chicago. Uh, Every year for the last five years outside of the pandemic, my dad has taken a yearly trip to New Orleans and I've never been able to join him. And this week I got to, and we ate and drank and I'm thinking about those beignets forever. After going back to school in my early 40s to pursue my lifelong dream of becoming a midwife, I'm now licensed in my state and officially I am a certified professional midwife. This is Jamie from Washington, D.C. The best thing about my week, earlier this year, I came out as non-binary to a lot of people and started the process of changing my name. Well, just this week, my name change was final, and I announced it and came up to my work, and they were wonderful. I could not have expected such a great reception, and I was just overwhelmed. Hi, Sam. This is Christy. And Lauren. And the best part of our week is... We got engaged. In beautiful Southern Vermont. Thanks, Sam. Love your show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam, for all that you do. Thanks again to all those listeners you heard there. Sammy, Dana, Jamie, Lauren, and Christy. And I want to take some time right now to share the best part of my week. Our editor for this show, she has a sick kid at home. And she's been juggling taking care of the kid while also doing this show with us. And in one editorial meeting this week, the toddler showed up in the Zoom. And at the end of the Zoom, as we all said bye, I heard the small child say bye to us as well. It warmed my heart. Thank God for parents and for little babies and for parenting out loud. I appreciate it. Listeners, you can send your best things to us at any point throughout any week. We still love to hear from you. Just record your voice and send that voice memo to us via email, samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week's episode was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Audrey Wynn, and Liam McBain. Our intern is Nathan Pugh, and our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our big boss is NPR Senior VP of Programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.